Happy to welcome everyone here today. I know we have guests from the Decatur Book Festival who I met yesterday, said they might come to church. I see a few, and so uh, saw some in the first service as well. So we are glad to welcome everyone here today. I'm in a, a series on the parables of Jesus in Luke, and today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 12 as Phyllis read and as she suggested, listening for a word from the Lord. That's what we do when we open scripture on Sunday or any day. We're listening for a word from the Lord. So wonder what that word will be today for you and me. Everywhere I turn these days, I keep running into the issue of slavery. This is entirely unexpected. Right now, at Mercer University, where I teach, I have a class going on great moral leaders. We are, in the first part of the class, studying three of them who I consider great moral leaders. Not everybody would, perhaps all of them. That's one of the things that's fun about the class, is debating who gets on this list. But I, I would mention three. William Wilberforce is the first one we study. He led the abolition of slavery in England. Harriet Tubman was a fugitive slave who went back to the South to rescue many, many others. And Abraham Lincoln, of course, is known for, among other things, signing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. So slavery is in the air over at Mercer. In the news these days, surprisingly, slavery is also in the air. The shocking events in Charlottesville a few weeks ago have us thinking about America's tortured racial history, a past that apparently is not past, a past that is still on our minds. Also, if you pay any attention to uh, world events, there has been a resurgence of modern-day slavery, of sex trafficking and child slavery and, and debt slavery and other kinds of slavery. We thought that slavery was dead, but it is not dead. And today, you come to church and you get 13 verses about slavery. So there you go. One reason that happened today is because slavery was ubiquitous in the ancient world. It was certainly very prevalent in Greco-Roman society. One estimate is that one out of every five human beings were slaves in the Roman Empire. Two main sources of this abundance of millions of slaves were captives and war. If you survived war, you were probably going to be taken as a slave. And debt slavery, where people who were caught in debts that they or their family members were unable to pay, they were enslaved for their debts. Slavery through war and slavery through debt remains with us in our world today. The strongly hierarchical nature of Greco-Roman society meant that master-slave dominance paradigms were just in the air. This was the primary way to understand relationships. We live in a culture where the primary way to understand relationships is equality. But in that culture, the primary way to understand relationships was dominance. The dominance of husbands over wives of fathers over their children, and of masters over slaves. The power of masters over their slaves was pretty much absolute. 
violence was routine. Quite often, so was sexual abuse. This absolute power terrified those on the receiving end. And it is clear in these stories that Jesus tells. Jesus does use slavery as an example in multiple stories and teachings. Just like he used lilies and birds and harvests and kings and prodigal sons. It was part of the atmosphere, familiar to everybody. This was not an endorsement of slavery by Jesus any more than it was an endorsement of harvests and lilies. It was an illustration of a broader point. But I must pause here to say that it was taken as an endorsement of slavery by many Christians for many centuries. The fact that Jesus taught about slavery without explicit condemnation was cited in antebellum defenses of slavery offered by learned clergy and scholars as late as 1861. How could slavery be wrong if Jesus never spoke against it? Thus it was argued. This is another reminder, if we needed another one, that even for people like us who take the Bible very seriously, we are reminded that it is always subject to interpretation. And that biblical literalism in contradiction of deeper biblical principles like love, justice, dignity, equality, and mercy is a very dangerous practice and remains with us among many Christians today. So I do not tell this story or retell the stories that Jesus told to endorse slavery, obviously, but to see what he wanted to teach by telling these parables. Our passage actually offers two parables about slavery. The second interprets the first. So let's just enter into them and read them and see what God's word for us might be through these two stories. So we start off in verse 35 of chapter 12 of Luke. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. The expectation clearly communicated in just the way Jesus tells this story is that slaves were expected to wait up for their master when he was out, no matter what time he got home. So we can start there. There is no right of sleep for a slave. You sleep when the master says you can sleep, not before. Sleepy slaves are failures. Awake slaves are not. Awake, busily active slaves have done best of all. So well that in the story, the master next breaks with convention and serves them some supper. It says in verse 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat. He will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. So now we read on in verse 39. But know this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. This verse, I think, is something I had never noticed before. It suggests a good reason why slaves needed to be awake beyond that the master wanted it. The reason was to secure the home from robbers. Folks didn't have Ackerman security back in the day. 
Perhaps a home was especially vulnerable in a village where everybody knew everybody else's business. And so everyone would have known that the master was away at a big party. If everybody knows the master's away at a big party, that might be a good time to invade the house. You know, the same thing happens today. There are criminals who strike homes when they know that the family members are away at a funeral or a wedding. It happens because these things are, are in the newspaper, right? It's a funeral, you know, they, they strike the family, which is despicable, but it happens. So far, Jesus is going to offer us two lessons from the wakeful slaves. It's in verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. So be ready. He comes when you're not expecting him. So that's where we are so far. Now, Peter is not satisfied. He wants more. This is of the nature of the Apostle Peter. He always wants more, right? He says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? And the Lord said, he answers a question with another parable. Who then is the faithful and prudent manager whom his master will put in charge of his slaves to give them their allowance of food at the proper time? So the focus shifts subtly in this explanatory second slave parable. Now we have an unexpected focus on leadership, on management, and responsibility among a slave group. The ones selected for a managerial role will be those who are found hard at work when the master unexpectedly returns. And so the happy result for these slaves is seen in the next two verses. Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all of his possessions. So the result of being found hard at work in the midnight hour is greater responsibility. Now what slave wants greater responsibility? Maybe the suggestion is that slaves too have pride. Even slaves in this context would appreciate being recognized and trusted and respected by their master. Something like we do when we are entrusted with greater responsibility at work or at church or anywhere else that we care about. Towards the end, Jesus offers the chilling alternative of what happens to the slaves that are not found awake. It's gradations of punishment based on how irresponsible they have been. And I'm going to read it again. It's striking, but it's there. 45, if that slave says to himself, "Ah, my master is delayed in coming, and if he begins to beat the other slaves, men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Yikes. That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Nicer for him, I guess, but it's still a pretty bad situation. So the abusive and drunk slave is the worst, and it goes down from there. And then Jesus wraps up in words that begin to maybe give us some word of God for us. From everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. From the one to whom much has been entrusted, even more will be demanded. Let's call this the principle of escalating responsibility. 
okay? And let's make, I'll make three moves here that I think are there. The principle of escalating responsibility. The more you know, the more you are responsible. The more you are given, the more that is required of you. The more you are trusted, the more you are accountable. Principle of escalating responsibility. So, is that it? Is it time to go home? Is there more? I think there is more. Um, Why does Jesus tell us two back-to-back parables about slaves and masters coming when we least expect it? One way I like to interpret Scripture is to look at various possibilities of meaning and not to try to say, here's the only way to read it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer three again today. Preachers think in threes. It's wired into our brains and taught in seminary. So three possible lines of interpretation for us to ponder. And the first one is, always expect the imminent return of Jesus? Question mark. We are being taught maybe that Jesus went away and is coming back soon, so therefore we should be expecting him soon. Let me, let me think about this for a minute. Well, first, scholars debate how much Jesus himself talked about his return versus how much developed as an idea in the early church. Certainly it is true that in the earliest Christian church, like you see it in the letters of Paul, Jesus was expected to return soon. Soon, like within months. As the years passed and Jesus did not come back, it became a crisis for for Christian thought. Finally, the way the crisis got resolved was that it settled into a doctrine, the doctrine of the second coming, that one day Jesus will come back. It's in the Nicene Creed in the 4th century. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Most Christians believe this. That in general, one day we believe Jesus will come back. But periodically, this belief that someday Jesus will come back has surged to be a belief that very soon, very soon, Jesus is going to come back. This has tended to happen especially in moments of crisis or in times in history that seem especially momentous. So, for example, around 1000 AD, a lot of people thought Jesus was going to come back. And then around 2000, remember the Y2K thing? Remember all of our computers were going to melt. Around that time, Jesus was going to come back. But for me, there's, there's a, a specific memory where this affected me. Anybody remember the name Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth? You remember? Anybody old enough to remember that? There's a, if you can see on the screen... And then, more recently, there was Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins in the Left Behind series. If you are 50-something and grew up in a Baptist church, you may have been exposed, as I was, to Hal Lindsey, who made millions, millions of dollars setting the date of Christ's return. As I recall, it was 1977. He missed it just a little bit. But the, the checks still cashed for him. They really did. He tied the, the return of Jesus to a combination of his interpretation of Revelation, Ezekiel, Daniel, Mark, and current geopolitical events, all leading to 1977. 
If you are 30-something, you probably were affected by the Left Behind series with Tim LaHaye. And there you have an Antichrist figure who I remember, his name was Nikolai Carpathia, and he was vaguely associated with the United Nations, who I always think of whenever I think of the Antichrist, of course. Um, I remember singing in youth choir in 1978, I wish we'd all been ready. Does anybody remember that song? I'm sorry, shall I sing it? It went like this. Um, There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. I believed that. I was so scared. I was a baby Christian and I was afraid that Jesus was going to come back any day. And being a high school student, I might be doing something I shouldn't and he wouldn't take me with him. The lively belief in the return of Jesus is still there. In a recent poll, 40% of Americans said that they expect Jesus to return in the next 40 years. And I wonder what that number would be today. It usually stays pretty high. This expectation runs deep in the blood of our deeply religious country. Is it a bad thing or a good thing? On the negative side, I can personally attest that this teaching that Jesus is coming Today, tomorrow, the next day has been used sometimes to manipulate people's fears, to make people live primarily in fear. And then if a date is set and that date is missed, it can create disillusion and disbelief as people believed whoever was telling them the exact date, which should never happen because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, but people made it into a money-making thing. The other thing that has deeply concerned me about this when I've run into it in American Christianity is people who seem to look forward to a scenario in which everything gets worse and worse on earth until Jesus comes back. And so it's like we don't want to make peace or advance justice or care for creation because we actually need for things to get worse first. I remember being in a Sunday school class when it looked like, it was in the early 2000s, it looked like we were going to go to war with Iran. And the Sunday school teacher actually said to this large class, good news, everybody, it looks like we may end up in a war with Iran. It's growing, he said this, I will never forget it, it's growing gloriously dark. To me, that's horrible theology. Is there a positive side to the sense of the imminent return of Jesus? Maybe, I think it can create a sense of urgency, a desire to please Jesus, And all of us benefit from a reminder that none of us have unlimited days to serve him. For all of us, in a sense, there's going to be a knock at the door. And so being urgently on the job, knowing that and not being complacent is good. So that's what I would say about that. But now let's try a second reading I think it's striking, not only here, but here, the idea of serving a master who is away. This theme has some fascinating possibilities, especially in a postmodern moment where a lot of people have a lot of doubt about God. They want to believe in God, but God seems far away to them. So one suggestion for how to read this story is that we serve a divine master who is away. 
who in terms of our experience at least, seems like he's away on a long journey and has entrusted responsibility to us. We do not know when he is coming back. Meanwhile, get about your work. It's a very interesting way to think about how God relates to the world that we live in, that God is kind of away. One of my favorite theologians, as you well know, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said in the letters and papers from prison, God lets us live in the world without the working hypothesis of God. Now, he said that while he was in prison under the Nazis during World War II. It was a dark thought for a dark time, but he was working in the same direction that I'm talking about here, that we must take responsibility for, for our lives and our church and human history now. Certainly it can seem, it seemed to him, it can seem to us that God seems absent or silent or away at times. If we are honest, I know through pastoral conversation that there are many days where we in this church, some of us, wish we could feel more of God's active presence. And yet Jesus talked about trusting God absolutely like a loving father. But he also suggested that it wasn't always easy. And at the cross, he himself experienced a sense of God's absence when he cried out, remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt that way? Does this resonate? So just the idea that sometimes it feels as if God is away on a long journey. And we are left to ourselves, is perhaps suggested here. But my preferred reading of this passage is more like as a summons to Christian urgency and responsibility. That we should think of ourselves, especially if we are committed followers of Jesus, as servants of a master we have pledged to serve voluntarily. When we walked down the aisle, when we got baptized, when we said, Jesus, I am your person, I will follow you, we took upon ourselves his service. And he takes our performance seriously. We have been entrusted with responsibility. We will be held accountable. We are to be dressed for action with our lamps lit. We are to be wide awake and hard at work, not growing lazy or sloppy. We are to be vigilantly protecting the master's house from harm. Let's linger there for just a second. Which aspect of the master's house are you called to protect? In what role? Parents, if you are Christians, in a sense, any house that you are parents of, it is the master's house. That house belongs to Jesus, right? How are you doing protecting the master's house? How are you doing raising your kids in Jesus Christ? How are you doing taking care of your marriage? Parents, grandparents, how are you doing protecting the master's house? Or how about this house? Deacons, volunteers, church members, are you taking care of the master's house? Pastors, how are we doing in our roles? Or we could ask, if this whole world is actually God's house, how are we all doing? This world filled with evil and injustice, this world 
that we seem so casual as if it'll just be perfectly fine no matter what we do to it. How are we doing? Are we taking good care of the master's house? My mind runs over thinking about distracted and disengaged parents, church people who mismanage or tear apart their own churches, pastors who literally become abusive drunks or abuse in some other way their power and responsibility, politicians who neglect or abuse their roles to serve their nations, communities, or the world, people who do not take care of the world house. The warnings are clear, never get lazy, Never get dissolute, never get complacent, never abuse your authority, never pretend that you don't know what your responsibilities are, and never lose faith that the master is coming back and there will be a moment of reckoning for all of us. And so remember that the more we know, the more we are responsible. The more we are given, the more that is required of us. The more we are trusted, the more we are accountable. And so may we indeed be dressed for action with our lamps lit, busily doing our master's work until he comes again. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.